Thanks for choosing BJSM Podcast. I'm with Sam Blanchard, and I'm hoping that this is the second of Sam's podcasts that you listen to because he talked about injuries in kids. And we're about to talk about monitoring the load in kids, which is absolutely critical. So Sam has tremendous experience from Brighton Hove Albion Football Club Academy. He's also one of the UK physios in sport and he's involved in the conference that's being run in Brighton in October on kids' injuries. So Sam, welcome to this second podcast. Thanks for having me back. And what we're going to do is give people a feel for your day at the Brighton Hove Albion Academy. What's life like for a kid? What do they do all day? Generally, they're just tearing around life at about 100 miles an hour, bouncing off walls, I think is a, a good way to describe a typical day for them. Um, it depends on their age as to, to when they would come into the club. So we, we, we've signed them from about um, eight or nine years old, and then their training load increases as they get older. Um, but nearly all of the kids will come in through the day at some point as a, a break from school um, where they'll, they'll get education within the club. Um, but what it does is it increases their contact time with football. Um, what we need to remember is when we see them at training, and we might see them for maybe two hours one evening, we've got to think of the accumulative load that they've had through the week. So what else have they been doing, not only that day, but the, the preceding days as well? And, and with these kids, if they're excelling in one sport, chances are they're excelling in others as well. So... Um, in the UK in particular, a lot of kids through the winter will play football and rugby and, and those sorts of games. And then in the summer, they'll move into cricket and athletics. Um, and this isn't even taking into account all the unstructured play that they would do with their mates at, at lunch break at school, for example. Um, so the majority of their day really comprises of repetitive bounding, jumping, running, kicking, falling over and getting back up. Um, and in the, the previous podcast, I mentioned this, the composition of the immature structures um, that are susceptible to compressive and tensile loads. Um, we really need to have a think about the effect of this accumulative load on these structures. And while we don't want to stop kids playing and having fun, um, perhaps the key to motor development could be this diversification of sport. Um, so coaches will always say that Whatever session they're in, that's the most important one. Um, and that if a kid is struggling with fatigue or niggles, then they should drop all the other activities outside of that. But personally, I don't think we should be saying that. What do you think we should be saying? I think we, we have to control the controllables. So we know generally what their week would consist of. And we know that they're just about to undergo maybe a two-hour training session, for example. And so the one interaction we usually have within the club would be it would be our responsibility to run a warm-up, for example, just prior to this, this training session. So we can really consider what impact our warm-up has on this accumulative load on these kids. So do we have to include bounding exercises, for example, like hurdle drills, or do they have to do prolonged lateral hop and holds? Um, and in particular, I'm talking about this 12 to 14 age group where we see these apophysitis problems. So instead, could we tailor their warm-up to have maybe more of a balance and proprioception element to it or lower impact coordination drills and movement patterns? 
maybe building some hand-eye coordination drills that they're not going to get from their training session that's just about to come up. And in doing so, I think we can still achieve our aims of a, a warm-up, so we can increase heart rate, we can explore movement and, and range through joints, but we're also protecting these immature joints from this, this accumulative load. The other thing that I think we can do is a bit of coach education, um, and maybe try and encourage some creativity on their part and, and maybe challenge them every now and then for a session to not include striking a ball, um, and perhaps emphasis on maybe more ball control or going through drills at a slower pace and working on technique. There's a great saying from Bill Knowles in the States who says, um, to speed up, you must be able to slow down. Um, and in context, he was talking about eccentric control in strength and conditioning programs, but I really like that quote, and I, I think that we can adapt that principle to what we do and really consider the end game. So once and again, you know, every now and then, having a, a lower-impact training session could really benefit these players in the long term and the coach benefits as well from having a more consistent squad to work with instead of players being in and out with these growth related injuries. I'm not saying this has to be every session. We, we, do, we know the benefits to those high intensity sessions that we get but just a consideration every now and then. I suppose this brings us on to how to monitor that load. Um, and so where I was at, at the club, we were really lucky to have um, GPS monitoring for our academy, which ensured that we could build a picture of age groups and um, have a look at their training requirements and, and how it will change through the ages. But in turn, what it did as a physio is it helped our return to play as well. So we knew that what the demands of our rehab had to create on someone going back into a training session. And I think if, if people are maybe unfamiliar with this or underutilising this tool, then um, at the conference we've got Frankie Hunter from Hull City talking about uh, the use of GPS, and I think it's a, a must-see talk for anyone that would want to know more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the big advances, isn't it, that uh, you've got these specific data for your own club, your own athletes academy here, that allows you to benchmark when you're rehabilitating them. Do you think you can use that to prevent growth-related injuries as well? Yeah, I, th I think it, it definitely can, and, and it is a luxury that, that some clubs have and some don't. So I think you know, even moving away from GPS, we can still monitor load and its impact on growth. Um, and, and one way we can do this, and you know, is we don't have a crystal ball. Um, not every athlete is going to develop at the same rate as their peers, for example. Um, but we can use for example, like the mirror wall calculation um, of maturation to help us identify a growth spurt. And this is the, the seated height versus standing height calculation that estimates how far away a child is from their peak height velocity. It is limited, um, as it is only a prediction, but what we can do is maybe give ourselves a buffer either side of this prediction, you know, a margin of error, um, and we can use it quite effectively, I think. Um, if you can estimate someone being a year either side of their growth spurt, you can consider them quite stable within their growth. Whereas I think anything within nine months of an estimate, we should be flagging to monitor. So maybe these athletes get a bit more attention to their height and weight measures, for example. In doing so, what we can do is traffic light players relating to their growth with a green light being um, over 12 months beyond their peak height velocity. You know, they've had their spurt, 
this doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stop growing. They'll continue to grow, but it will be a more controlled rate. Whereas we might put an amber flag on those that are within a year of their growth spurt and then a red flag on anything within nine months. As I said, it's not terrifically accurate. Um, we can't apply it to kids under the age of 12 years old because it, it will only predict uh, within three years of um, their current age. So if you measured an 11-year-old, they'll come out about with an adult height of seven foot something. And also in terms of limitations, I think I'm correct in saying that the, the predictive calculation was based on Caucasian Europeans. So we can't accurately say that the calculations applied to any ethnicities outside of these parameters will be um, as accurate. Yeah, those data were collected in Canadians. It was the old cold Canadian province of Saskatchewan, Sam. But uh, just to help people figure it out, if they go to the Google and uh, want to plug this in to find out how close someone is to peak height velocity, what would what would they do? So you you can you would take a standing height. Um, in, in centimetres and, and get that the total height. Um, record that and then ask them to sit with legs extended and trying to get the, the base of the sacrum and the, the pelvis as flat as you can to the, um, the height measure. And then you would take a seated height. Um, and so in doing so, you, you take out the, the length of the legs, which we believe are the first bits to grow. Um, so we get a, a leg length compared to a trunk length um, and compared to a total length. And then what we can do is there's um, a calculation that we can input and it will, it will churn out some numbers for us. One of them is it will put a rough estimation on um, mature height, uh, which is, I think, plus or minus five centimetres. And then the other thing it will do is it will give us a calculation of roughly how far away they are from their peak height velocity. So this could be a plus or a minus number, with a minus number about... If it was about 0.4, we'd tell us it's about they're about four months away from having their growth spurt, um, which in this case we would probably red flag because at any point from now on they could they could hit their their peak height velocity. And Sam, why don't you take us further from these traffic lights and the idea of actually managing someone, managing a kid at a difficult time? How, how do you do that? The, the information that we can gather about this is. Is brilliant, and, and while you know we've got considerations of reducing injury, there's also some windows of opportunity here to, to create a really robust athlete, um, and it's these, these this traffic lighting that can really help us do that. Um, a colleague of mine, Conor McGoldrick, talks quite passionately about this, and often tries to dispel rumours like, um, for example, weightlifting stunts growth, or weightlifting is damaging to the growth plates. Um, most injuries we see related to weightlifting in youth athletes is due to a lack of supervision or um, incorrect technique. So if we can identify these growth spurts, um, we can really take advantage of the hormones that are, are flooding their body trying to promote growth. So you know, we can increase lean muscle mass and promote bone density at, at certain time periods and really lay some great foundations for their adult life. If we start with the younger groups, so we, we consider the prepubescent kids, um, they've got a great potential for motor learning. So early on we can teach them good squat and lunge techniques and take advantage of the, the supple joints and the, the greater range of movement they have at these younger ages. But we don't have to just stick to sagittal plane activities, we can do 
change of direction or deceleration drills and um, you know, develop whole body coordination, um, which will help us reduce injury a lot later on in life. During puberty, we can start teaching these lifting techniques. They can be unweighted to start with, so they can master the techniques and um, with guidance and with the correct supervision, we can start increasing resistance and um, adding weight to these exercises. You know, really taking advantage of these natural growth hormones that are being developed at this age. Um, and around this, this time period as well, we can start moving away from bilateral exercises and, and progress to unilateral control and balance. Um, and then moving on through that beyond the, the peak height velocity, once we're, we're through that rapid growth spurt, this is where we can really ramp up their speed work, do some dynamic stabilization, um, increase those strenuous anaerobic drills, um, but continue to progress their, their weighted loading in the gym as well. And as we come towards the end of this podcast, are there any other tips that you picked up from the academy in your experience with the kids in football? I think if um, if we, again, go back to that traffic lighting um, and we accept that there's no crystal ball, we can't predict um, who's going to grow before their teammate, for example, I think it's important that we start considering a move away from chronological age grouping um, and maybe start being a bit more fluid with our training and look at the player's biological age. Um, at Hove Albion, we introduce some really loose philosophies about biobanding. Um, so we look at the individual needs of the players and we would create drop-in clinics um, for both physical and technical coaching that weren't restricted to age groups. So, for example, a, a coach might highlight a player who says, you know, usually he's pretty hot with his touch and all of a sudden now he's, he's all over the shop. He's tripping over cones that he never used to. He's running quite awkwardly. Well, this sounds like someone who's going through a growth spurt and you know the coaches have got a, a good eye for this um, they can't always tell us what is wrong but they can certainly tell us what isn't right um, so a player like this might be someone that we would identify as coming in for a drop-in clinic and work on the re-education of these motor patterns you know help them control their new longer limbs that they're they're not used to controlling um, I talked previously in the other podcast about this the, the uncontrolled longer levers and how that's a risk factor for injury. Well, this is exactly how we can impact on these players. Um, the other consideration we had was on the technique side of the game. So if you've got a, a big, strong striker in the under-13s who's finding it far too easy to, to hold off the defenders in training or in matches, then what is he really learning from doing that? You know, He's not problem-solving and developing his technique because he's relying on his strength to, to barge people out of the way. And he may not be the biggest, strongest player for the rest of his career. You know, other players might catch up with him a little bit later on. So let's challenge him now and let's, you know, maybe move him age group and put him up against some equally big and strong players. So now rather than relying on his strength, he's he's got to work on his ability to turn a player or beat them using skill. And there's loads of examples of this through the different age groups and it's probably one thing more for the coaches to consider than for us. But if if you look at the um, IFSPT definition of a sports physiotherapist, they state that enhancing sports performance is a criteria of our profession. So we aren't just the guys that 
pick up the pieces. It's not you break them, we'll fix them. It's um, it's our understanding of growth that's really going to aid these discussions and decision um, regarding the management of these players with the coaches and trainers. Fantastic. Lots of great tips there, Sam. And what about the conference? Um, we're running um, the ACPSM, the, which is the UK Physios in Sport. Um, uh, we're running the conference on the 9th and 10th of October in Brighton um, at the American Express Stadium. And it's under the title of the Young Athlete. And for the first time, we're, we're going to be attracting a, a different cohort beyond just physiotherapy. Um, you know, we've got speakers from sports science and strength and conditioning, and um, we're confident it's going to really create a good multidisciplinary platform for, for people to learn from. You know, whilst maintaining a strong physiotherapy core, we've got some brilliant speakers that um, you know I think people should definitely come and see. You know, international recognition. We've got Dr. Phil Glasgow, who um, you know one of the, the best people I can think of at holding an audience um, with the videos he uses and uh, his presentation skills and his experience, not just with elite athletes but also with younger athletes. So he's definitely one to come and see. We've got Amanda Johnson, who previously um, was from Manchester United Football Club and did her PhD based on the maturation of young players, um, now based at the Aspire Academy in Qatar, so she's working with a population beyond just football, um, so you know, multi-sport, so again, a depth of experience there. Um, and, and Raf Brandon, for, again, from a strength and conditioning point of view, um, quite a big name there that, that we're attracting, so... And beyond all of that, um, Brighton's just a great city. So if anything, just come for the nightlife. I can vouch for Phil and Amanda. Heard both him speak and uh, tremendous experience. So, look, UK Physios in Sport running a bunch of good education events, and uh, this one in October sounds like a must attend. Thanks for your time, Sam. Great, great overview of a big problem and one that doesn't get as much attention as adult injuries. Thank you, Karim. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. And as you know, we update through various channels, Twitter, Facebook, Google+. There's a free app that can help you find our stuff very easily. And thanks for spending time with us. Feel free to give us suggestions of who you'd like to listen to on podcasts and other parts of BJSM through our um, Facebook, Twitter, or uh, Google+. Thanks for listening. Have an active day.